Welcome to the Echo Chamber. I'm your host, Brandy Hell. As we gather this week to witness the inauguration of our new president, we find our nation in a state of great political unrest. While certain recent events of violence at the Capitol are no doubt unprecedented, it is certainly not the first time an inauguration in our country has been met with divide. In 1973, the United States was reaching the concluding stages of our involvement in Vietnam. And while the war would soon come to an end, the preceding weeks leading up to the inauguration were met with some of the most intense and deadly bombing campaigns the war had witnessed. The anti-war movement was unhinged. They had marched, they had protest, all to seemingly no avail when it came to changing the foreign policies of Richard Nixon. So what to do next? American conductor Leonard Bernstein gathered an impromptu orchestra and choir to perform a concert for peace. Following his belief that by creating beauty and by sharing it with as many people as possible, artists had the power to tip the earthly balance in favor of brotherhood and peace. Here is the story. People's Coalition, may I help you? Not everybody is here this weekend to celebrate. Thousands of demonstrators are expected. They've spent weeks organizing and are here to protest the war. This is one anti-war demonstration that Mr. Nixon is not going to avoid. Past demonstrations, he has fled town. Nobody sees him now. He's never explained to the nation why he ordered these saturation bombing raids on Hanoi and Haiphong. But this is one time he's going to have to be present. We know he's not going to be out of town. And we want to be there at the same time. Federal troops and National Guardsmen are in position to augment... The number of people who were in D.C., it was thousands upon thousands. 18,000 were at the cathedral alone. To have the cathedral so full like that, full to the gills, there was no room. It was just overwhelming, you know, to try to find a place to park, of course, but to be with so many like-minded people. Contrasting with so many protests now where there's violence, it was so peaceful. There was such an attitude of goodwill and camaraderie and companionship. It was just incredible. I'm Dr. Alicia Kopstein-Penk. I teach at American University, and I'm a contributor and co-editor of a recent collection of essays called Leonard Bernstein and Washington, D.C. I was a singer in Leonard Bernstein's Concert for Peace that happened at the Washington National Cathedral in January of 1973. In addition to the three official inaugural concerts tonight, there's a fourth unofficial one. Leonard Bernstein is conducting what is called a Concert for Peace at the Washington Cathedral. Admission is free, arrangements have been made to pipe the program outside, it was thought 10,000 persons might show up, many of them anti-war protesters. There was hope, there was a desire for peace, there was love, but there's also a resignation, a fear, because people had done their utmost to try to protest the war, and it didn't seem to change anything. Years and years and years of protests still led to the Christmas bombing. 
So it was just, we're getting desperate. Let's do everything we possibly can. The Vietnam War went from 1959 to 1975. When Nixon was elected the second time, it was shortly after some more horrors in the Vietnam War. We had Kent State and the Pentagon Papers, the My Lai massacres. Films and photographs were available in Time and Look and all the major magazines and newspapers showing women and children and young people just lying dead by the road. Oh, shocking for people in this country. There were a lot of anti-war protests, and Bernstein participated in those anti-war protests. The Nixon administration was very frustrated with the lack of progress in resolving the situation in Vietnam. So they began what was later dubbed the Christmas bombings. There was this very intensive bombing campaign to try to force the Vietnamese government into submission. It was a very unpopular decision. The sound in the background is a jet that has gone by. I can hear uh, some bombs in the distance. The sky is lighting up, so something's going on somewhere. It was a two-week bombing campaign with over 20,000 tons of bombs dropped on civilian areas of Vietnam. Over 1,600 people were killed, civilians mostly. Over 2,000 homes were destroyed. So this is what people in the United States were hearing about. Arriving from New York, Ms. Baez said recent U.S. bombing raids had delayed her departure from Hanoi for a week. After a warm greeting by family and friends in San Francisco, she outlined some of the bomb damage described by one of her colleagues as far heavier than the London Blitz of World War II. There were 200 people a day being serviced, um, being, you know, who were very badly wounded, which they assume then mean 200 killed, because it's about average 50-50 uh, or else more die than are wounded. So there, while I was there for 11 days, there were about 2,000 people just from Hanoi proper who were killed. Well, I was scared stiff, you know, and um, you begin to understand certain things about about what it's like being under bombardment for the last 25 years or whatever it's been, that the people go on functioning day after day after day. Probably one of the biggest mistakes of people who've never been in that kind of situation is to think that any kind of that bombing is going to stop anybody's will. The American composer Vincent Persichetti was approached by Nixon's second inauguration committee on the recommendation of Eugene Ormandy, the principal conductor at the Philadelphia Orchestra, with a commission. They wanted him to compose a new piece of music that would accompany the text from Lincoln's second inaugural address of 1865. The administration realized how unpopular the Christmas bombing was Initially, they approached Persichetti and asked him to maybe remove certain passages that they felt could somehow be construed as critical of the Nixon administration's policies with Vietnam. And then ultimately, they decided to remove the piece entirely and go a different direction. My name is Michael Chikinda. I'm head of the theory area at the University of Utah School of Music. And I wrote an article for the Journal of Music and Politics entitled, Lincoln, Persichetti, 
and the second inauguration of Richard Nixon, a study in artistic vision versus political expediency. The inaugural committee were very concerned about anything that could bring further controversy to what was supposed to be a very celebratory event. There were massive protests going on across the country in Washington. And so they wanted to squelch any possibility of something that would be inflammatory, that would really stoke the fire. There were these memos back and forth, and then they finally decided ultimately that even after they removed some key phrases, they still felt the spirit somehow of Nixon's second inaugural, that somehow people might draw a connection between this line of text in Lincoln's speech to certain policies of the Nixon administration. So they said, we're going to dispense with this altogether, and we're going to look for other texts. They looked at uh, Longfellow's Hiawatha, the Declaration of Independence. They even looked at bizarrely at some poetry by Ray Bradbury. I think that was one of the most curious things that... And just imagine for this, okay, this is a presidential inauguration, right? You have the speech by one of the most important and beloved presidents from U.S. history. Oh, no, no, we can't have that. Instead, let's look at the poetry of Ray Bradbury called Madrigals for the Space Age. When you make a choice to remove something as important as President Lincoln's speech and expect that that's not going to have fallout you really, the naivety, it, it's just, it's, it's hubris. But when you make this step, when you decide, okay, this cannot see the light of day, you know, take it out, that inevitably always ends up having the opposite reaction. You know, in the case of the Nixon administration, they thought that by removing the Persichetti piece with the text by Lincoln, the press just had a field day with it. You know, what, you're, you're censoring Lincoln? There's a wonderful cartoon by satirist Wayne Stayskell. And in the first frame, it shows this figure violently kicking Persichetti in his posterior and the leaves to the score flying helter-skelter. And this person, maybe anybody from the committee, Ken Reed, Zed Cowling, whoever, saying, sorry, Mr. Persichetti, your composition is being deleted from the inaugural concert because it mentions war. A little embarrassing to the president, we feel. Then in the second pane of the cartoon, another figure walks up to this person who's just kicked Persichetti, and he says, oh dear, here's another that mentions rockets and bombs. Well, get rid of it, whatever it is. And this person says, uh, it's the national anthem. On second thought, we could play it softly. I love that because that just really captures the field day the press was having with this, right? And at the same time, the utter absurdity of the situation, you know, the thing that you can put a lid on these things. Richard Nixon was very fond of Eugene Ormandy and very appreciative of the work Ormandy did with the Philadelphia Orchestra, wanting to have Ormandy and the Philadelphia Orchestra play. This was a personal preference of the president, as was the inclusion, of course, of Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. Almost 70 years later, Tchaikovsky wrote this piece. It's also a favorite of Mr. Nixon's. As we told you, he first heard it in Philadelphia, played by this orchestra in 1970. That, amongst everything else, was something that had to be on the program. Now, why, again, with all of the suspicions surrounding Lincoln's speech, 
The defeat of Napoleon in Russia, you know, and uh, some people were referring to Nixon as a dictator, given his policies in Vietnam. Why was there no connection drawn there? You know, that really, do we want some sort of tacit comparison between Nixon and Napoleon? But again, that was no problem there, you know, because Nixon absolutely loved the 1812 overture. The other thing is there are cannons. It's scored for cannons going off. Well, how do they make the noise of the cannon going off? Mr. Normandy, in fact, I have here a memo that he passed out to the inaugural committee asking for two men with sh repeating shotguns to fire blanks into oil drums. But in a discussion, in a discussion with the inaugural committee, they decided to make do this evening with drums instead. The applause is for the Valley Forge military band whose young members have just come on. And in a moment, Eugene Ormandy will be returning to the podium to conduct this huge ensemble in Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture. It's just so funny. I mean, there's no problem, no pangs of conscience, no hand-wringing with the 1812 overture. But Lincoln's second inaugural address, uh-oh. Uh, hmm. That won't do. It really boggles the mind, the thought process that goes into these sorts of things. Hello. Yes, sir, Mr. President. Well, how'd you like the evening? Well, I enjoyed it. We had... Uh, Which one did you go to? We were at the American uh, music concert, and... Uh, we didn't do the symphony. The symphony, just... They had some magnificent things there. The 1812 Tchaikovsky Overture and other things that I'd asked Armady to do, and it, it was fantastic. Having Armady, the great symphony, rather than that goddamn Washington symphony, even with Dorati, who's a great composer. That's right. God, Armady was fantastic. You know, uh, about a dozen of his uh, people asked to be relieved because of the bombing and the rest. He said, hell no, we'll uh, we'll turn the symphony. And, uh, and he said that uh, if the president decides to come back, I hope he does, I hope one him to put his arm around me in front of these goddamn left-wingers. That's right. The sound of harmony. God damn, it was great. And they finished with the 1812 overture, you know. It brought the audience to its feet. It was fantastic. And these youth kids that we went to, god damn, they were good, you know. And all these, you know, these few assholes that say they want to demonstrate against the war. Most of the kids are all for us. Sure they are. Oh, hell yeah. At the same time, Francis Sayer was the dean of the Washington National Cathedral. And Dean Sayer and Bernstein got together to decide to give a concert for peace in protest. And even though Dean Sayer said this is not an anti-inaugural, it was scheduled on the same night at the same time. So what work to perform? Haydn's Mass in Time of War. It features a dona nobis pacem, a desire for peace. This is what he was hoping for. Also, I'm sure Bernstein picked the Haydn in part because he knew modernist works took too long to rehearse. And this was put together very quickly with very little rehearsal. I got a call from somebody from Choral Arts, from Norman Scribner. He was the director of the Choral Arts Society, and he was like the guy to go to for a choir in D.C. There wasn't time to do auditions for the Concert for Peace because I'm sure Bernstein called him and said, can you have me a choir ready to rehearse in a week? 
I was on his list and he said, do you want to do something with Bernstein again? And I said, sure. And, and I showed up for a rehearsal. It got pulled together amazingly quickly with phone calls. I remember Bernstein walking out uh, somewhat resigned to a rehearsal with an amateur choir. And he gave the downbeat and conducted a clear beat pattern. And the chorus sounded absolutely fantastic. And Bernstein blossomed and began just conducting the feeling of the music. We had one or two piano rehearsals, and then we had maybe one or two rehearsals with Bernstein, and then we did the concert. It was pretty intense. My name is Matt Holson, and in 73, I was a bass in the choir for the concert for peace. I was 20 at the time, and it was extremely exciting. I really didn't understand a whole lot about what was going on in the war and in politics at that age. I really didn't, but I was happy to be part of something protesting Nixon's second inauguration. But mostly it was just, you know, working with Bernstein, which is a real pleasure. I mean, it's, it's everything is so easy when you have a good conductor. There's something about, I, I the only way I can explain it is you just latched onto his hands and you did it. He made it easy. My impression right from the beginning was that Bernstein had shouldered the burden of making up for any deficiencies in preparation or previous experience of this group, that he was going to personally lead them through the piece by sheer force of will and charisma. He leaned into the piece and into the space of the orchestra and into the chorus, exerting a level of psychic and even moral energy that by the end left him completely drained. His hair was wet and limp, his face was running, his clothes were soaked through. He had basically wrung this performance out of the orchestra and the chorus. My name is Bernie Swain. I was working in Washington in 1973 at the age of 23, and I attended the anti-inaugural concert for peace at the National Cathedral on the evening before the re-inauguration of Richard Nixon. When the news came out that Bernstein might do a concert, I was very interested. The ticket would be free and available at noon, so they expected a big line of people. My girlfriend's classmate offered to go down. The limit was three tickets per person in line, and she offered to get a ticket for herself and a ticket for us, and it turned out she got there at noon, was basically first in line, and so we got first pew tickets to the concert. I was in the very first seat, the aisle seat of the first pew. When the VIPs arrived, most of the people who filed in directly across from us were people that we recognized. There was a Senator Charles Mathias, there was Gene McCarthy, there was Ted Kennedy and his sister. There was a whole range of big names of the Democratic Party lined up just opposite us. It made us feel even more privileged because we were basically, had the same sight lines they did, we were at the same distance that they were. There was a sense of fellow participation, of common bond, because we knew we were all there for the same reason. I understood it as a counter-inaugural. You know, that's what people called it. You know, we're the counter-inaugural concert. And I remember a lot of people talking about how, well, I'm glad my name's not on any program because I work for the department of such and such. You know, there were a lot of people who were like federal employees. There were a lot of members of the National Symphony 
who played and who again didn't want their names on there because it was controversial. Although I gather the National Symphony felt snubbed because Nixon had wanted the Philadelphia Symphony to play. And I think everybody in DC knew that the Philadelphia was a much better orchestra. Of course, people were angry because they had not wanted Nixon reelected. They were doubly angry over the war. They were triply angry because of his choice of the inaugural concert. Not only had he snubbed the National Symphony, which was the traditional agent for the inaugural concert, but he had selected Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, which people took to be a fairly warlike choice. It just seemed like another lack of class on Nixon's part. So I was particularly happy that Bernstein had chosen, in a sense, to rescue them by bringing them back on his stage. And if anybody in this country was a bigger figure at the podium than somebody like Ormandy, it was clearly somebody like Bernstein, who was the superstar of all American conductors. So there was a way in which the feeling was that this had trumped Ormandy, had trumped Philadelphia, and above all, had trumped Nixon. And the audience, they were kind of in a vengeful mood. They were kind of almost triumphal that maybe we lost the election, but here's our chance to be heard. There was a kind of electric air as people gathered into the cathedral because they were so anxious to hear this event as a way of even kind of flipping the finger to Richard Nixon. It seemed like both politically and musically, it was the perfect revenge. Bernstein, his fan mail said, I commend you for taking this courageous position. I admire you. It takes much courage for a public figure to take a stand. It is the most creative protest I have heard. The critic Richard Freed actually wrote, the marvelous Haydn mats you have chosen to perform is not a prayer for victory, but a supplication for peace, is as an inspired a choice for such an event as the 1812 overture in the context of the official inaugural concert is obscene. The buzz that was in the cathedral before the speakers started was something the musicians were very aware of because they were on the stage. And I think they knew the import of this event. They knew what it meant to people. They knew that it wasn't just people attending a concert to listen to music. It was a statement. And it was a political statement. It was a national statement. It was a cultural statement. The fact that it was in the National Cathedral raised the ante on all of that. So I think the chorus and the orchestra was already primed, and so was the audience. When it ended, the chorus looked beat, and the congregation exploded. It was thunderous. There was something like 10,000 people outside watching on television and being soaked, and I was not outside to hear their reaction, but I would be surprised if that reaction wasn't thunderous as well. I mean, I think we were all on our feet for some time. It was what people could do that night if they wanted to make their statement. And of course, the next day on the mall, you had tens of thousands of people in an anti-war protest at the time of the inauguration. But that night, this was the event to do. And it was clearly much more than simply a musical concert. It was a historic event. Before the music began, Gene McCarthy got up and gave a fairly long talk. And the brunt of his talk was, we have tried everything to resist this war. And he made a long litany of all the activities and events that had gone into it. And he said, we have arrived at long last with the recognition that there is nothing more we can do or say. And so we resort to music. 
There was a huge moral question of should musicians perform for this person, for this event? And I think it's interesting to contrast the performers at the Concert for Peace with the performers at the inaugural. At the Concert for Peace, it was a 50-piece local orchestra, mostly national symphony players, mostly first-chair musicians who donated their services. So this shows a willingness to be present, to protest. 125 singers, trained by Norman Scribner, donated their services. A solo quartet from New York, all young, donated their services. In contrast, at the Kennedy Center, the Philadelphia Orchestra was performing at Nixon's inaugural. And it became quite a moral question for a lot of the orchestra members. They even got telegrams from local churches and peace activism groups asking them to not perform. The musicians had to make a decision because it was in their contract that they had to perform. And many people protested this. They did not want to perform, but there was no way out of their contract. So some of them got sick. One person did not move at all when Hail to the Chief was played. That was his way of protest. And there were articles then saying that there should be a morals clause in musicians' contrasts, allowing them an out if they disagree with the morality of the event or the person who the event is honoring. And Nixon called himself a Quaker, who are pacifists. And obviously, that was not the case with Nixon. When you read periodicals of the time, you know, those sort of columns they used to have about the who's who, who went to this event, who was there, of course. They talked about all the celebrities that were there and how what a wonderful party and they drank champagne and they had this lovely finger food. But when you look at the political commentary, what you would find on the opinion page, it was the exact opposite. It was not the frou-frou, you know, how lovely it was and who was wearing this and who was on the arm of this person. It was all discussion about this endless campaign in Vietnam and the removal of this piece of music that was to include text by Lincoln. So you get this very bizarre contrast between being an elite social occasion and don't you wish you were there to this is another instance of an administration that's tone deaf and not listening to the American people. I think there are some people that were saying, given the situation in Vietnam, is it even appropriate to have, you know, you, you can have the inauguration ceremony, of course, which is important, but do you need an inaugural celebration? Do you need all of these concerts? This was the first time they were going to have three separate concerts, the symphonic concert, the American concert, and the youth concert. And a lot of people were saying, you know, look at the money that's being spent on this. This is money that could instead be diverted towards helping those who are coming back from the war, who have been maimed, who have sustained injuries. And is it really appropriate to have this type of celebration considering what's going on? So again, I think a lot of people saw this as being tone deaf. So that counter concert at the National Cathedral, even though I don't know that there's anything that Haydn never stated explicitly that it's anti-war. It has sort of been taken up as an anti-war 
peace, something that's advocating for peace and reconciliation. I'd like to think of a parallel universe where the inaugural committee had allowed Persichetti's piece to be included and to be performed. I think it would have been an opportunity for the healing process to begin. I think as people heard the words of Lincoln again and heard this gorgeous music by Persichetti and to think about there is a possibility for healing, that this war will come to an end and we can come together and heal as a nation as they did at the end of the Civil War. Special thanks to Michael Chikinda, Alicia Kofstein, Matt Holson, and Bernie Swain for sharing their insight and memories of the musical events surrounding Nixon and his second inauguration in 1973. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Till next time, I'm your host, Brandi Howell. Thanks for tuning in.